Hi, my name is Gary, and I'm not the Hi, Gary. And I think I need to uh, thank the committee for inviting me. Now, I think there's a committee. But all I've spoken to is Ram, and he's taking all the credit. And, and But thank you anyway. <laughs> my dry date's the third day of December, 1964. I um, I do that because I'm bragging. <laughs> Bob White told me years ago that the reason they do that in Texas so you know you have one. <laughs> they got a timer up here, Paul. I think it blows up at 61 minutes. I... Uh, I'm truly delighted to be back in Texas. I, I, there's a fond spot in my heart, largely due to Bob White, uh, because he had a large influence on my life many years ago. And apparently not quite large enough, because I think he had learned some things I didn't pick up too much later, but uh, I'll tell you a little bit about that. I, uh, that dry date I gave you is the day I hit a nuthouse door in a place called Evanston, Wyoming. And uh, I found myself there after becoming everything I despised. I had, uh, I was dying. I didn't know that. I, I, you know, I was six foot two inches tall, weighed something less than 130 pounds, and I was dying. That's skinny. You walk fast, your legs whistle. It's just, <laughs> and I'd taken some beatings. I was a fighter. I was not a winner. Some of you understand the difference. I know you do. <laughs> I, uh, there were times when, when uh, we'd be running in the streets of Cheyenne, Wyoming, and they have this little phenomenon out there once you're called Cheyenne Frontier Day. I see some hats and boots around here. I know you all know what I'm talking about. But uh, uh, There was occasions down there where they would run and tell Julie, my wife, that the next time you see Gary, he's not going to look the same. And I didn't. And uh, I, I, I just managed to take some horrible beatings. And some of them had been just before I got on that bus for that night. I didn't drink long, for what it's worth. I hit the, that nut house door on the third day of December 64, and I was about a month before my 25th birthday. And uh, the first time I got a hold of enough to drink, I guess I was 16 years old. Now, I, I, had, I had been stealing some out of my dad's wine bottle and this and that here and there, but I never quite got a hold of enough. All I did was get enough to get fascinated, but I never quite got a hold of enough. And uh, uh, there came a day when I was a sophomore in high school where two other fellows and I sell, myself had driven from Cheyenne to Laramie to a state basketball tournament. And we had... Uh, found some guy to buy us a quart of four roses and some Coke and, and uh, a Coca-Cola. Uh, <laughs> you got to explain that shit anymore. I just, it just doesn't work. Excuse me. <laughs> and 
And these two guys had picked up a couple of girls to go with us. They had to, but you need to understand at that point in my life, I was incapable of talking to strangers in general, particularly girl-type strangers. And uh, uh, it was just almost impossible for me. I, uh, it's amazing that I even finished school because I was that terrified as a kid growing up. I was a kid that sat in the back of the class and I didn't do anything to draw attention to myself. It was bad enough because I, I had this big wart right here in the end of my nose. That's what it felt like. Y'all couldn't see it, but it was there. And uh, I, I really didn't want anything like that to ever happen. If I was invited to the front of the room to recite something or, or do something on the blackboard, it was just horrible for me. And it didn't matter whether I was around friends or strangers. I was always that, that scared. And so they picked up this, these couple of girls and we had the booze and... And we took off in the car for a place called the Ninth Street Hill. Now, you might call that the boondocks or something around Texas, but it was just out there. Several years later, I got to remember in that trip, we were heading out there in the boondocks with those girls in that car and the booze in that car, and we didn't know what to do with either one. Uh, <laughs> you couldn't run down to the drugstore and buy a magazine to explain it all back then like you can now. But. And we opened that bottle and we passed it around the, the car. And the first time I did it, just like I'd seen, seen the guys out there in oil patch, I always wiped it off for some damn reason and took a hit and passed it on. And then the next time it came around, I wiped it off and I took a drink and I kept drinking it until they took away from me. And I got a bunch of whiskey. And everything changed. And I mean it really changed. I no longer felt like I didn't belong with that group in that car. I felt like I owned that group in that car. <laughs> Which is a cute way of saying is I had never felt that good in my life. That's the best I had ever felt. And I spent a long time trying to catch that again. And I really did. But anyway, that night, everything happened that I, at that point in life, I had hoped would happen. Well, not quite. Uh, one of the girls in the car had a couple points about her that just fascinated the hell out of me. And I, I made a grab for one of them, and she liked to beat me to death. And, that, and a little while later, they were going to sober me up, so they took me down to the Diamond Horseshoe truck stop and filled me full of coffee. And what that did is it woke me up. And I took a poke at one of them big cowboys, and I really did get the hell beat out of me that time. And then... A little later, I threw up on that girl, and, and uh, that's as far as it went. That was it. <laughs> and they, they, they put me to bed someplace and explained to me the next day what I'd done. I, I vaguely remember some of that. I remember that big son of a bitch hitting me, though. I never did forget that. Anyway, that's the story of my drinking. Now, I drank a lot after that, but effectively, that's the story. That's as social as my drinking God. I mean, there's nothing that terrified my wife more than having to bring Gary to a social function because I didn't do that well. So at any rate, let's compound that real quickly. By the time I was, I was 24 years old, uh, I'd been in and out of the Army uh, six months in a court-martial. I had been... Uh, uh, well, Julie and I had gotten married and accumulated three little girls. And uh, I don't know where they came from. 
I uh, accumulated a lot of jobs. I <laughs> had a tough time with jobs, and uh, I just reached this point where all of a sudden I was no longer living at home. Julia decided it was better that I live elsewhere. So I moved in with a Hans beer distributor, and uh, <laughs> I thought that was pretty good thinking, but uh, he didn't think it was too good after a couple of days. And, uh, and I tried to call Julie to get back in the house. That was my plan. But you got to sit in the plaid bar and work on that for a while. And so I decided I'd call her and tell her I wanted to see the kids. She went for him. And so I went up there to the house, and her dad was there. I was real glad to see. And, and, and we started talking about my drinking. And we started talking about Julie's uncle's drinking. Now she had this uncle that was bad to drink. And, and he'd made two or three or four previous trips up to this same nuthouse. Back in 1964 in Cheyenne, Wyoming, they didn't have much clue what else to do with an alcoholic was other than shipping to this nuthouse. And, and they had a lot of experience with, with Julie's uncle, Bert. And uh, so I'm sitting there listening to all this, and the pressure's on. And so I told uh, her dad, I said, okay, I'll go if you haul me up there. I didn't think it was out of line. Hell, it's only 400 miles. And uh, he said, no, I'm not going to do that, but I'll take you down to the bus station. And he did, and I eventually got there. He, uh, he told me several months after that that he said, do you remember that night I put you on the bus to Evanston? I said, certainly. He said, uh, you know, he says, I really didn't much give a shit which bus you got on. Said, <laughs> as long as it's leaving Cheyenne, I didn't care. <laughs> Apparently I got on the right bus. And I ended up in this place, and they kept me there for 16 weeks, which was the normal stay for alcoholics at that place at that time. Uh, I think. <laughs> uh, and what I learned is, well, two or three things happened to me that are important to share with. One, I got my physical health back. Uh, I was in such bad shape when I got there that, that I had to learn to eat again. Like I said, I weighed something less than 130 pounds. And I, I was just really sick. I'd taken some beatings and, and I was nearly dying. Now, I want you to know that I did that just with booze. I'm a, I'm a token AA member. I've never used anything other than alcohol, and that's because alcohol really worked. <laughs> it did a hell of a job. And, uh, and I'm not bragging when I say that. I, I, the other reason I didn't try anything else is I was a little bit stupid. Uh, there was a day, a Sunday, and this was back when the, the liquor stores and the bars were closed in, in uh, Cheyenne on Sundays, and I needed a drink. And we lived in this three-story apartment, and uh, there was a guitar player down on the first floor. I'm sure there's some guitar players in here know what I'm talking about. But I figured Carl would have some drinks. So I knocked on his door, and, and he hollered, come in. I went, and he's sitting there with one leg over the arm of the chair playing the guitar. And I said, uh, you got anything to drink? I could really use a drink. And, and he says, no, but help yourself. And he pointed to a brandy snifter, a big one. And it all had all different kinds of pills in it. Big ones, little ones, round ones, square ones, red ones, yellow ones, pink ones. He says, uh, I think drink, but help yourself. And I says, shit, Carl, I'm not sick. I need a drink. <laughs> I... <laughs> I 
I don't see what's the damn thing. That's an absolutely true story. <laughs> so they dried me out in there. First off, they locked me up in this little room with one little window in it. And every once in a while I'd look up and there'd be somebody with their nose splashed up to it looking in at me. And, uh, and I remember that pretty vaguely. And, and I remember the cigarette lighter in the nut house. Did you guys remember cigarette lighters in the nut house? Where you put cigarette in your mouth and you walk up to a wall. And you, you push a button and this little thing like the cigarette lighter in your car comes on. And you can walk by there any time of the day on the Alki Ward and there's some guy standing up the wall. So I learned how to light my cigarettes. I found out I was an alcoholic there, and and I really did. I, I I'd had a lot of people talking to me, particularly Julie and all that. But they told me I drank funny, and they'd been telling me that for a long time. But I never related that to being a problem. <laughs> I told you I was a little bit stupid. I, I just never quite picked up on that. And so I learned I was an alcoholic by looking at the old U-shaped Jelinek charts. Remember those? You know, it'd show all the symptoms of alcoholism as you went downside, and they had the mess at the bottom with the DTs and all that stuff. Then various stages of recovery going up. And I remember just checking it off and getting down there at the bottom. Damn, I am one. And so that's how I kind of found out about it. The next thing I know is they put me in the alcoholic ward, and I'm talking to all these real old guys. Not that old, but real old guys who are alcoholics. And, and I listen to what they're talking about. And, and they're saying things to me that I really related to. But I hadn't done it there long enough compared to the way those guys look. And, and I, I, uh, but I'd keep listening and it kind of keep working for me. I did learn I was a has-been. I, I mean, I was a never was. I was in a room full of has-been. Uh, in fact, one day we were sitting around the table talking about what we were going to do when we got out. And some of the guys were going to go back and try to get the ranch back or the business back or the wife back. And I am. I'm in a room full of has-beens. But I hadn't lost too much yet. You know, I was and never was, and I was sure of that. And it seemed to come around to my turn to talk at this table. And I heard myself tell these monkeys I didn't have any idea what I was going to do when I left there. All I knew is I never wanted to take another drink. Now, that's important because I'd never had that thought before. I truly hadn't. I heard myself say that. Of course, I qualified to be an AA member that night. I met the requirement of the third tradition. didn't know that either. That's what happened. And uh, I don't remember much else they taught me. I remember we had a group therapy session. And I know that the two guys that led the group died drunk. And I remember they showed me AA... And they brought AA meetings in there, and I really didn't like that much. They talked about God and things that I had no experience with whatsoever. In fact, I learned the Lord's Prayer in AA meeting. I hadn't had any experience with that as a child growing up. And I, uh, I was embarrassed to hear people talk like that. It really bothered me. And so they talk about this AA, and they bring AA meetings. People would drive up from Salt Lake City to this place. And I'd look out the window at the cars that were pulling up there, and I think they couldn't possibly be alcoholics. These cars had chrome strips on both sides. 
<laughs> Both headlights. Couldn't be alcoholic. But it rubbed off. I left that place four months later, and here's what I knew. I knew I was powerless over alcohol, and I knew that. I understood the fact that if I take a drink, I get thirsty. I get real thirsty. And we can get fancy, and I can talk about Dr. Silksworth's discussion on the phenomenon of craving. But that boils it down pretty good. If I take a drink, it ain't going to be enough, ever. And that's what separates me from just about all them other drinkers out there. That and the fact that I can't stay away from the first drink. How about that? So I was powerless over alcohol, and I knew that when I got out of there. The other thing I knew that I had a chance of not drinking if I hung around the people in Alcoholics Anonymous. And I wasn't much impressed with you. <laughs> I was just as afraid of you as I had been anybody I'd ever met. And that's true. I'm not one of these guys that came in and said, I just found what I was looking for right now. I was still terrified. I still didn't know what to do. I felt fortunate that I had not lost my wife and family at that point. I mean, it was close. It was by the skin of my teeth, but they were still there. I, uh, I left there 16 weeks later. I got on the Greyhound bus heading back to, to Cheyenne. And I hadn't been on that bus 30 minutes, I don't think, when, when, when I had the hole in my belly with the wind blowing through it. And I was just as terrified and I was just as sick as I had been four months before and I went in there except I didn't have the shakes. I was still suffering from what Paul calls untreated alcoholism, and I really was. And it took me a long time to get the treatment. A long time. I, uh, just very briefly give a chronology thing, they gave me a free ride to college. Two or three days before I was supposed to get out of there, they came up to me and they said, Gary, you know, if you want to, there's a deal out there that, that would pay your way to college they'd buy all your books they'd pay all your tuition and they'd give you enough to maintain your wife and your family do you think you'd like to do that well hell the option was looking for a job <laughs> now what the hell would you have done I mean, so I did and, and, and uh, Julian and the kids and I ended up moving to Laramie and let me tell you about my first uh Nearly four years. I went through college. I got a four-year degree in three years in the summer. And Laramie at that point in time had an AA meeting on Monday and it had an AA meeting on Friday if somebody else showed up. And uh, very often they didn't show up. And I'd go down to that meeting room and I'd make coffee. I'd make one of them 30-cup coffee pots. And I always took my books along so I could study in case nobody showed up. And I'd sit there and drink coffee and get wired like crazy. And nobody would show up. And I'd look out the window at the Buffalo Bar right across the street. You been to the buff? Uh, that lady's not there. Yeah, I remember that son of a bitch. Yeah. Bigger uh, It had light on Blink Buffalo. Buffalo. But the B was out. That thing was Uffalo. Uffalo. Uff. And I grabbed the arm of the chair and my knuckles had turned white. And I spent a lot of time that way in my first four years. So I finished college and I attended A that way. I had one friend in AA that I hung around real close with and we lied and did everything we could do to protect each other, particularly from our wives. 
Gotta watch them wise if you're newly sober and still telling lies and, and, and <laughs> in real trouble. They're dangerous. Ended up in Denver. Took a job with a, with an oil company. And uh, because I was with an oil company, I was going to get rich. And they didn't like me much because they fired me about a year later. But that's something else. We got down to Denver, and I went scrambling because I was terrified. I was completely out of my element. I was just a country boy. I grew up on an experimental farm outside of Cheyenne, Wyoming. And uh, all of a sudden, I'm in the big city, and there's meetings, 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 and it's crazy. And, and uh, so I started running to meetings. I started doing that. And everybody's a stranger. And people were patting me on the back saying, isn't it wonderful you got a hold of this thing so young and you didn't have to go to the stuff that we went through? And I'd look at them and think, I just finished damn near dying out there. I, I, there's not much left for me to do. I'll never make it. I can't do it like you. You old geezers are tougher than I am. Can't do it. And I wasn't getting any better. And, and I had this job last eight hours a day, and, and uh, it's, just, it's just horrible. I was still intentionally writing bad checks. I'd quit throwing punches, particularly at Julie and the kids. I, I uh, thought that was a good idea. I quit throwing punches at anybody that had any possibility hit me back. Uh, sober, I didn't throw punches. And uh, I was in trouble. I was in real trouble. But through a series of circumstances, I found myself at a place called the Denver Young People's Group. And uh, at that point in time, they met on a, 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 an upstairs storefront thing right down on 16th Street across the Denver Post. And uh, I walked into that meeting with, with a friend of mine. i got to tell you how I got there. I don't have to, but I'm going to. Uh, I found a friend, Joe, at one of these meetings. And Joe, Joe had something about him that I really liked. You know, that you want what we have. But what he could do is he could bitch better than anybody I ever saw. He was one of these guys who was good at it, and he was cute about it. And, you know, and I thought that's something I wanted to be able to do, so I hung around with Joe. And, and we're at Joe's house one day, sitting at the table drinking coffee and bitching, and, and, and his wife come up, and she says, Will you two get the hell out of here? She says, You're the two most miserable so-and-sos I've ever seen in my life. I don't care where you go, go get drunk, anything you want. If you want to go to an aiming, she says, I hear there's a young people's meeting downtown. Why don't you go down there? And Joe got up and he gets all puffed up. He says, all right, Brown, let's go down to that young people's meeting. He says, the babes down there got to be better looking anyway. <laughs> and that's why we went. <laughs> and they were. <laughs> Big difference. They did something I'd never seen done before in my life. They took a book, Alcoholics Anonymous, out. And I also got it four years sober. I don't remember anybody ever taking the big book other than to read the first portion of the fifth chapter. And they decided they were going to start a, a, a study meeting with you, a big book study. And so that's what we did. We couldn't, we couldn't meet down there, so we decided to meet in homes. And, and so we just went from home to home to home to home. So if we met at Lee's place, we were out there in Goat Hill down in South Federal. And if we were at, at Don Roy's place, we were in an uptown apartment, you know, just all over town. And we'd go there and we'd read. And, and we'd read stuff I'd never heard before. Got nearly four years old. So things changed. 
what happened, we start reading out of that book, and we started at the very beginning, we read the doctor's opinion, and, and we got into that, and, and we'd read something, and I was thinking I was supposed to interpret it for him. I mean, fair game to interrupt the reader. I mean, that was just part of the deal. That's how we did it. And so I'd say, well, the way I interpret that, uh, yeah, uh-huh. and, this, and this little guy named Lee would say, Gary, we don't much care how you interpret that. <laughs> That's not a direct quote. <laughs> what we're interested in is the black print on the white page. And they said that to me a lot the next few months. An awful lot. But several things happened while we were doing that. I told you I understood that I was powerless over alcohol. I really knew I, I was powerless over alcohol. I can't take the first drink and I can't stay away from the first drink. There's a problem there. But we read a line at the beginning of the third chapter this one night that says we learned we had to fully concede our animal cells that we were alcoholics. This is the first step to recovery. The delusion where anything like other people are presently maybe has to be smashed. And I went home that night and it was like I was given the keys to the kingdom. I'm not kidding. Something changed for me that night. It really was. Not only was I powerless, I was unmanageable. And I knew it. Never in my life have I been able to manage my life. really haven't. If I was able to manage my life, I could have got past all that fear and spoke up in front of the classroom as a kid. Could have held a job. If I could manage my life, I could have done all those things. But I couldn't do it. Still can't. But I don't have to. Because the whole rest of this deal is to get the manager. We, uh, we read on in the big book. At this point, something started to change with the group. And... and it, I don't know what we did. And I truly don't. I'm not being cuter. But all the gals left the group. We started out with them, but they disappeared. And uh, we kept reading in the big book, and we got into the fourth chapter. We agnostic. And uh, I came to believe that a power greater than myself could restore me to sanity because I watched him get drunk sober. I watched him straighten out some really sick pups. I'd watch him come in. They were loony. They were stone crazy, and they had tried everything in the world to get sober, and it hadn't worked. I mean, nothing had worked for them. Old Jim had been saved 43 times, and he hadn't got sober. You know? It's not the Lord's fault. Don't misunderstand me. Tom came to us. He came to us when he was 24, 25 years old. And he'd tried something to get sober. He had entered a, a, a psychiatric center called Mount Airy. A great name for a nut house. Not airy for the airheads. But their treatment for alcoholism there was the old aversion treatment. And some of you in here remember that, I know. I, uh, but for those of you that don't, it's a medieval treatment. It still goes on some places today. Oh, it is. And what it was, is a hospital setting there, obviously. And the treatment room was a, a normal-sized room, maybe 15-foot square. And the walls were mirrored with all different kinds of shelves on the walls with different kinds of liquor sitting on each shelf. In the middle of the room was a barber chair, and there was a stainless steel pot that would swivel away from or in front of who was ever in the chair. And Tom said they took him in there, and they gave him some abuse, And they told him they could have anything he wanted to to drink. Of course, you drink on top of the abuse, you get violently ill. But because the mirrors are there, you get to watch your hair fall out, your eyes curl, your toe, you know, toenails curl up. You puke up stuff you didn't even know you had. 
And the result, you know, what that's supposed to do is that you're just going to be so adverse to that that you're never going to take another drink. The aversion treatment. And when Tom came to us four or five years after that, he told us that it worked. He said it really had. He'd not had reason or excuse to take antabuse since. <laughs> I came to believe that power greater myself could restore me to sanity because I watched him do it with other drunks and it's that simple it's nothing I did for that to happen other than show up at meetings and really try to do this thing even though I didn't have a clue what I was doing I really didn't a couple nights later we got to reading in the fifth chapter and we read the bit about the actor and I identified with that I died fed particularly with being kind, considerate, generous, patient, even modest and self-sacrifice. You notice I have that memorized. Well, we got down to that and we come up against the prayer and little Lee speaks up. He says, I uh, got an idea. He says, why don't we all join hands and read slash pray this And I'm thinking, oh, I don't want to do that. Because, you know, I really didn't want anybody to see me praying. And I really didn't want to hold hands in a room full of boys. And, I, <laughs> and he said he wanted to do that because he attended an awful lot of AA meetings. And for what it's worth, Lee's just a couple of months behind me, sobriety wise. And he's going to an awful lot of AA meetings and he would talk to people and they'd start talking about the 12 steps. And he'd ask people if they'd written an inventory yet. And they'd say no, and he'd say, why not? They'd say, because they hadn't taken a third step yet. And so, I won the timer. And so, he said, I'd like to take this third step prayer to all of you. Because if in a couple, three weeks from now, you hear me telling somebody I've not written inventory because I haven't taken a third step yet, you can call me a damn liar because you saw me do it. And that sold us. And so we did it. We joined hands and, and read slash prayed the third step prayer again. When I went home that night, I told God, I said, please make it real. I really meant that. Something's got to change for me. And I took the third step that night. Now, I don't know how important that is. And I, I really don't. This business of taking a third step prayer with other people, other than the book, is very precise that we ought to do that. But there were 14 of us in that room that night. My guess is this would have been about 1969, 68, 69, when we did that. And 13 of us are still sober today. And we're pretty well scattered around and... Uh, some of us are doing stuff like this regularly and others are, are, are doing some things, but we're all sober except for one of them. And he's dead. And Eddie went out and froze to death. I mean, he might have been the best example for the other 13. I don't know. But I still think that's crazy. I don't know where you're going to go and find a group quite like that. I mean, there are not many of them, I'm sure. And so then I immediately started to avoid writing inventory. <laughs> And I got up against it one night, and I uh, there was there was one of the guys in this group was a fellow I didn't like, and he didn't like me much. And, and his name was Ernie, and we're talking late 60s. The sign of the times, of course, is the hippie time, 
So you guys are coming around with it again with the earrings and the smelly armpits and the long hair and all that. We're way ahead of you. We, we had that shit years ago. And, uh, <laughs> and Ernie and I didn't like each other worth a damn. And Ernie's a big Spanish-American with a really good-looking guy. He'd walk into the AA meeting. And I hear the girls over there say, geez, when Ernie walks in, it just takes my breath away. I'd think the son of a bitch. <laughs> but we were getting in on this hugging stuff. We're a little heady on that, too. And, and we loved everybody. You know, that, that, that was the sign of the times. And in AA, you love everybody, right? You don't run around saying, I think that guy over there is a real yo-yo. Yeah, you, just don't. you don't do that. And so we'd be all the hugging and kissing going on. And, and, and you'd look up and there'd Ernie be sitting over there. But you couldn't let anybody know he didn't like him, so I'd give Ernie the peace sign. And Ernie would give me the peace sign. Well, he's missing this finger. It's <laughs> only one reason I didn't like him. Ernie disappeared for a while, and he ended up down in Lake Whitney, Texas. And uh, and he got around Bob, and, and he uh, was told to go to the one of those horrible lodges down there and, and, and write an inventory. And a couple of days later, he came out of that room and uh, told Bob he was done. And Bob said, well, why don't we go fishing? He knew that Ernie's favorite thing, well, just about his favorite thing to do was fish. <laughs> And so they went out and got in the big boat, and they went out in the middle of the lake, and Bob turned the boat off, put the keys in his pocket, and says, Ernie, he says, why don't you tell me what you wrote in that inventory? And he can't swim. <laughs> and so Ernie took a fist step. <laughs> so when he came back, he showed up at the young people's meeting, and he walked in, and I'll never forget it, because I looked him in the eye when he came in, and there was something different. There really was. There was somebody home, and I hadn't seen anybody there before. And it was different. It was that blatantly different. Anyway, he told us that uh, the story that he'd gotten a beef with his wife, and he'd run away from home, and ended up down there at Whitney, and, and uh, took this time. So I went home that night, and I did take my big book out, and I took my pencil out and pad, and I wrote my first inventory, such as it was. And I wrote all night. And at sunup, I quit because I didn't seem to have any more to write. A couple weeks later, I ended up taking my fifth step with Ernie. And I, uh, I never felt so good. I was almost like that first drink. Got that fifth step done. I did a little bit of work on six and seven and said the prayer. But I felt so good. I'd never had that feeling before sober in my life. It was just the greatest thing that ever happened to me. So what I did is I quit working staff. I don't see what's so damn funny about that either. <laughs> Hell, I taught people all over the United States how to work steps, but I'd always quit at seven. Wouldn't do any more. They caught up with me about uh, 12 years ago, I guess. I, uh, I was in serious trouble. Uh, serious trouble. I, I, I was unable to make a living. I was still sober, 20 years sober. My marriage has fallen apart because my behavior had turned to, to crap. 
was totally lacking in character. If you want to know what character was, J.C. Watts said it on the TV the other night. I don't quote politicians much, but he defined character. He said that's doing the right thing when nobody's looking. Isn't that neat? Well, I wasn't doing that. And I was losing my family sober, and I was losing my job sober, and I was losing my sobriety. And it got bad enough that I broke down and called, called Paul in Chicago. I'd known him for many years and, and uh, had always respected him. And the question to him, I think, went like this. I said, do you think that a 45-year-old alcoholic with 20 years of sobriety could be going through male menopause? And he said, well, maybe. <laughs> but I think if you take the steps, write an inventory, come up, take inventory, come up here and take some fifth steps and make some amends, you'll feel better. And so I agreed to do that. And I wrote another inventory. Now, I want you to know, every time I showed other people how to write inventory and do that, I generally did it with them. I still do. I have found that I've always been capable of generating material for inventory. <laughs> Haven't lost that knack. And I called Paul a week later and I said, I got this inventory done. And I really did a good job. Keep in mind that I'd been writing inventory all along. I really had, and I'd really been doing my very best, to be honest. And the resentment list, I didn't cover much old ground. It was mostly new stuff that hadn't been inventory. My fear list was the same thing. The sex list, I did the whole thing from the beginning. And I did it again, and I'd done it before. And I called Paul about a week later and told him I was done. He said, be up here in Chicago. And he gave me the address of this motel out on Ogden Street. And he said, uh, be there by 4 o'clock Friday. So I got there early enough to go get a cup of coffee and go back to my room. And there's a knock on the door. And this guy says, my name's Dennis and I'm an alcoholic. And I'm here to swap fist steps for you, with you. I'll go first so you know what to do. And this monkey sits down with a three-ring binder and he starts reading inventory to me. Great deal like mine. Names had changed. <laughs> to protect the innocent. Uh, we exchanged notes. I'd picked up some things Dennis had missed. He picked some I'd missed. And he left. I went and got a cup of coffee and there's a knock on the door and the guy says, I'm Chuck. I'm an alcoholic. I'm 20 years sober. I'm here to swap this stuff with you. I'll go first so you know what to do. <laughs> By noon Sunday, I'd done it nine times. <laughs> now, you go ahead and laugh. I want you to know something. Our secrets are what kill us. And there's just nothing better for getting us well than getting rid of our secrets. Let's go ahead and talk about that shady stuff. It doesn't hurt a bit. Besides that, you all did the same thing. Anyway, I sat down with some of them for lunch that Sunday after we were done. And they said, let us help you with your men's list. <laughs> get, get a pencil and paper out. And these guys had remarkable memories. So anyway, we put down the men's list for what they knew, and then Paul picked on me to put down more on the list for what they didn't know, stuff that I owed that hadn't been taken care of and didn't show up in that inventory. So anyway, I left there on a Sunday. I went home and I sat down with Julie. 
And I said, I think if this thing's going to work, we got to do this. We got to make these amends. And we we figured out, and we had a great deal of debt. I mean, we owed an awful lot of money. We didn't owe it for anything. We just owed it. I mean, it, there wasn't new houses, cars, furniture, stuff sitting there. We just owed it. And it went all the way back as far as we remember from before sobriety as well as after sobriety. And so we discussed it, and we decided we had to go do something about that. And so. I was a Sunday night. On Tuesday, we started making the phone calls. And I'll just share a couple of these with you. I, uh, one of the persons we called was her dad. and Because we had taken money from her folks under a variety of pretenses. I know you know I never did that, but we, we had lots of different reasons to borrow money from her folks. I would sign notes that I was going to pay them back. Of course, I didn't have a slice. Well, maybe I did when I signed the note, but I forgot I signed it about 30 seconds later. And hadn't sent him any money for it or anything like that. So we owed him the money, but and, and her dad answered the phone. And, and what I said to him was, I said, I said, Ellis, I'm calling because we really got to make some changes in our life, and I and I've got to make serious changes in my life dealing with you. I said, I want you to know you've helped me any number of times. You've given us money when you probably shouldn't have, and I know I caused you a great deal of pain in the way I treated your daughter, the way I treated your granddaughter. And you've always treated me with love and tolerance. And I'm really grateful for that. And I love you. And he said, oh, shit. And he handed the phone to Grandma. (laughs) And so I go through the same thing with her. And then I say, by the way, have you any idea how much money you've given us over the years? And she said, right down to the last penny. (laughs) So we made arrangements to start making payments to them to pay that off. Now, the important thing about that is that was a Tuesday night. The very next Thursday night, Julie's dad was out trying out his new snowblower, fell over with with a heart attack, and never regained consciousness. Damn near missed it. Wouldn't that have been a bitch if I'd have missed that? Wouldn't that have been terrible? Called an old boy I'd worked for. In Laramie, his name was John. While I was going to school there, I had to get a part-time job. The the uh, government wasn't taking care of us the way we'd been accustomed, and uh, and I, I went to work for a, a garment business there, a, a clothing store. And he trusted me with the business. I, I was the oldest student he had working for him, and and he wanted to go out and do some drinking, so he'd leave me in charge of the place. The result of that is after three years in the summer of school, I graduated University of Wyoming, the best-dressed graduating senior to ever come out of <laughs> But I'd stolen all the clothes. And so I had to track John down. I finally found him. He'd, he'd sold the store and retired, and I finally found him. And, and I said, John, I said, this is Gary Brown. Do you remember me? And he says, sure. You used to work for me. He says, you still go to those meetings? I said, yeah, John, that's why I'm calling. And so I told him that I'd stolen all these clothes and I was calling to make the arrangements start paying him back. And what did I have to do to make this thing right? And he was silent for what seemed like a very long time. He said, you know, I thought you were stealing that shit. (laughs) (laughs) So anyway, I made a deal to send him 50 bucks a month for 23 years. And and I did for the first two, three months. And then I, I didn't get a commission check, and I didn't, I didn't send him any money, and he called me and done me. 
And in the conversation, I, I said, John, i got to do this. I'm not messing around. It's deadly serious for me to get this done and done right. And he says, well, you don't have to with me. I don't need the money. But you've got to do it, by golly, with everybody else. He says, promise me you'll do that. I said, okay. That's a promise because i got to do it anyway. So he forgave me the deal. And uh, a few months later, a few years later, Julie, Paul's calling me regularly, seeing how I'm doing on it, and, and occasionally lying to him because I missed the commission and hadn't sent it. And, and I sat down with Julie one night and I said, we're not getting anywhere with this. I'm just not making enough money fast enough for this to happen. And she says, uh, well, i got an idea. She says, you got all your retirement there. You've had that job for a long time. you got that 401k deal and that. We've lived in this house for 11 years. We've got some, some equity built up in that. Maybe we could cash all that in. Maybe there'd be enough there to pay off all those old amends and, and, and we could buy a used mobile home or something. And I said, yeah, right. I really didn't want her to be serious. And the next night when I come home from work, I knew she was serious. And I said, I'll call Paul, and, and whatever he says, we'll do. And so again, I called him, and I, I said, uh, no, I told him the deal, what we were talking about doing. I said, now, is that loco or not? And he says, that's the sanest thing I've heard you say in 20 years. He said, was that your idea? <laughs> And I said, no, it was Jewish, and he said he thought so. <laughs> that was in October. The following February 28th, we sold the house. Remember that date because it was Julie's birthday. It was one of the neatest days we ever had in our lives, and it truly was. We, uh, uh, we sold the house, and I got to call on all these people. I called John and Laramie, the guy who had the clothing store, and all I said to John was, give me your address. I'm in shape to pay you what I owe you. And he gave it to me. He forgot her. He forgave me. <laughs> and I sent him the check. There was a man in AA, there is a man in AA, who years before all this I'm telling you about, had called me. He does this talking a bit. And he and I like each other pretty well. And he was leaving for a convention down in Virginia. From He lives up in Minnesota. And he was, he said... I'm going to take a day off early and stop and see you and Julie in Indianapolis, and then I'll go on down to that convention. I said, great, I'd like to see you. And he, I met him at the airport, and we went and had a cup of coffee, and he looked me in the eye, and he said, what's the matter? You look terrible. What's going on? And I said, well, they're going to foreclose on the house tomorrow. I, I, I haven't been honest with my money, and they're going to take the house away. And I said, that's bad enough. The worst part is Julie doesn't know that. She's going to lose her house in the morning and she doesn't have a clue what's going to happen. And I hadn't told anybody that. I hadn't said a word to anybody about that. And so we're riding from the airport out to our house and we're going past downtown on I-70. And he says, where's your bank? I said, what bank? And he says, the one that has the note on your house. I said, it's right downtown. Eh? He says, go over there. Maybe they'll talk. I said, trust me, Bob. They ain't going to talk. They don't want to talk. He says, well, they may. Let's go see. And so I'll never forget, we parked Caddy Corner from that bank. And we're walking into that bank. Did any of you guys ever have to walk into the principal's office with your dad? Huh? Boy, that's what I felt like. We went in there and we sat down. And Bob says, what's it going to take to get him even? And the guy gave him a number. And Bob's carrying it in cash and traveler's checks, several thousand dollars. 
And I walked out of there a little while later and we're even with the bank. And I'm going across the street and I feel worse coming out and I didn't go in. Uh, and I said, shit, Bob, i got to pay you back. And he says, that's your problem. <laughs> he was right. So anyway, all these years go by and, and we sell a house, we do all that, and I call Bob on, on February 28th. And uh, I said, uh, what's your address? I got the money to pay you back, that money you gave me several years ago. And he laughed at me. I'm not kidding, he laughed at me. I said, what's so damn funny? He says, well, listen, hot dog. He says, back then, he says, I was making so much money, I literally couldn't spend it all. I had a business that generated cash like you couldn't believe. It's since been outlawed, and you can no longer syndicate apartment houses and, and take the tax benefits from it. And, and uh, he says, I'm on allowance for the first time in my sober life. And, and, uh, and it's a mess. And he says, what Linda and I did when we were making all that money is we had a regular tithe, and we did that. But as a part of our tithe, we also looked for people we could help around the fellowship. And he said he had had the opportunity to help AAs literally all across the country. I do that. And he says, now I'm in trouble. And he says, he says, I'm just up to my neck in debt, and it's crazy, and checks are showing up. They're just coming in. And so by paying back that amendment, Bob, I got to be a part of a really big deal that goes around and comes back around. And it came right back in there. Uh, we sold the house, bought a mobile home. If I'm being dramatic, I call it the trailer. <laughs> I want to see real tears out there. <laughs> but there's people in this room that have been there. It's a pretty nice place, wasn't it? <laughs> And we lived there for five years. And a couple of years ago, we bought another little house. And, and it's fine except when you go to winterize it. I used to enjoy wintering that, winterizing that trailer. What you do with them is you crawl under one about that far, and you grab an electric cord and you plug it in, and you're all done. <laughs> we learned a lot there. One, we were absolutely free when we went in there because all the admins that I was aware of at that point in time had been made. That we were aware of. Had been made. And we had never known such freedom in our life. The promises in the book had come true absolutely. And one of my little games I used to do is I used to tell I'd experienced every one of those promises <laughs> at any given time. Every once in a while, you know, the fear of people didn't bother me. Or, what was going on now is I was experiencing all of the promises at the same time. There's a significant difference, a big difference. The freedom that i found since then, and the freedom that Julie found, I think, since then, as a result of these steps, is beyond anything I can describe. Now, here's what's important, I think, important. What I did and have been doing these last several years is strictly out of the book Alcoholics Anonymous. I'd spent four years making up my own program. I'm sorry, I, you know, for the most part, I spent 20 years making up my own program. And half majors don't get us half results. Half majors get us zip. And so I'm a believer in the book Alcoholics Anonymous. What we do in our group... Oh, i got to tell you... 
What we do in our group is what I'm talking about. We go through it line by line. And if it gives us a course of action to take, we take it. In other words, we do what it says. If it asks us a question, we answer it. And just recently, I finished with a group. We started with 32 and we finished with 19. They dropped fast at step four. <laughs> There's a guy named Scott in our group. He, 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 I don't see one sitting right out here. He's probably in the smoking room. But <laughs> he, He's one of these Harley riders. He's always wearing the black leathers and he's missing a couple of teeth so the grasshoppers are taking him out. And, and, uh, and he... Uh, He's probably about as tough as he looks. But I went to the workshop here a couple of Mondays ago and I walked in and Scott says, Hey Gary, he says, I made the men earlier this week. And I said, Yeah, I said, How's that? Tell me about it. He says, Well, I went to this church where I was a custodian for several years. And he says, I sat down with the preacher <clears throat> and I told him that I had caused him a great deal of harm and I was there to try to set it out. And I told him I remembered taking all that change out of the Coke machines and I told him I remembered stealing things like the toilet paper and that. And I said, by the way, do you remember anything that I might have missed? Well, he reaches in a drawer and he picks up this piece of paper and he starts litting off a whole litany of stuff that Scott had done. So Scott takes out pad and pencil and he's making a list of them and they're, they're deciding how much each one of them is going to cost to pay him back. And of course, some of them didn't have any monetary value. So Scott says, how am I going to make this right, preacher? And the preacher thought for a minute. And he says, well, he says, at the end of April... There's a bunch of us going to fly to Hong Kong, and then we're going to go smuggle a mess of Bibles into China. Why don't you come with us? <laughs> and Scott looked at him, and the preacher says, You said you'd go to any lane. <laughs> so last I saw Scott, he had an appointment to go get his shots and his picture taken for a, a visa. <laughs> and he's going. I'll tell you if he gets there. Right? He's, really plans that. he's a changed man. He's a fun man to be around now. This thing works and it really works. Don't kid yourself. If you're trying to make it just by going to AA meetings and attending lots of conventions, they're great and they're lots of fun and you can come away from just hiring a damn kite. But I always came away from them, hired a kite in three days I was lowering snake stuff. And it just doesn't last. What says worked for me and lasted and lasted is the 12 steps as they're outlined in the book Alcoholics Anonymous. Taken with everything you got. Don't pull the punches. Thanks for having me. I really enjoyed it.